This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to AHP Digital. Thank you for joining me. I do appreciate uh, your listenership when you could be listening to uh, plenty other podcasts or radio shows out there, but you choose to listen to AHP, so thank you very much. Uh, I thought I would do a personal intro to this podcast uh, with Nationals Senator Bridget McKenzie. Uh, I gave this podcast uh, to about three people. And they all came back and literally said, uh, this was the best show that I've ever done. Uh, That's their words. Uh, This show, they said this show was engaging. And listening back to and editing this podcast, I really did feel it's probably some of the best work I've ever done. Uh, It was engaging. Bridget was absolutely fantastic. Uh, If you don't know who Bridget McKenzie is, she's the Nationals Senator for Victoria who has been very vocal over the last, I'd say, 12 months, probably before that, but that's when I started following Bridget. Uh, She's been very vocal on the whole Glenn McGrath hunting in Africa uh, debacle uh, where people were just vilifying and basically saying ridiculous things about Glenn McGrath and also his cancer foundation and the McGrath Foundation for his late wife. Uh, She's also been uh, very vocal on shooting rights uh, and this whole inquiry into the banning of semi-automatic handguns. Uh, And you'll hear some of, I don't want to give too much away, but you'll hear some of Bridget's um, comments on the Greens uh, and the whole inquiry uh, being set up to basically attack law-abiding firearms owners and to ban semi-automatic handguns. Uh, And that inquiry and that's what they wanted to do the greens has literally blown up in their face and it's great to have someone like bridget mckenzie on our side uh, especially in that federal space uh, with liberal democrat david linehelm uh, advocating for shooters i mean without those two people there'd be no one else out there federally trying to help or advocate for firearms ownership in australia and if you've seen the inquiry you can go on my uh, facebook page sorry youtube page uh, Aussie Feral Control, and you can see some of the questions uh, that Bridget McKenzie uh, asked the Institute of Criminology uh, and also the Attorney General's Department as well. And uh, she was just fantastic. And um, you know, I was even engaged throughout this whole interview. Uh, I really can't speak more highly of Bridget. She's a very, very passionate woman, someone that um, knows what you know she's talking about, enjoys her hunting and shooting, but I'll let her uh, discuss that during the show and give you more details uh, about what she enjoys. Um, and it's great to hear someone just from that, you know, b- the, one of the two basically major parties um, supporting firearms ownership. Uh, again, I agree with about 99.9% of what Bridget says. Uh, there was an ABC interview where she said that uh, basically she wanted to see no watering down uh, of the National Firearms Agreement, um, which I think was a little bit disappointing, especially since you know we should be get rid of, re- getting rid of red tape. Uh, again, a red tape is destroying this industry. Uh, it's too much over-regulation and overburdening against all all law-abiding firearms owners. So what I'm going to do before we get into the interview, I want to play uh, those comments uh, from that ABC interview. 
And um, I hope you just enjoy this show. I think it was absolutely fantastic. Again, I know we're not going to agree on everything with all of our politicians. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I agree with Bridget that, you know, we need to bring the public along with us. Uh, again, I don't want to give away too much. I, I hope you listen to the show uh, and you do enjoy it. So what we're going to do, I want to play that ABC interview right now before we get into the show. Sporting shooters and pro-hunting groups appear to have ambushed a Senate inquiry into gun-related violence, with ending up with a dissenting majority report by pro-gun senators calling for no further restrictions on, quote, law-abiding gun owners. They also want a rollback of red tape in this area and deregulation of the firearm, firearm industry by state and federal governments. The report is a challenge to bipartisan gun policy in this country. On the face of it anyway, the Greens are accusing the government of kowtowing to the gun lobby. Green Senator Penny Wright is chair of the Senate Legal and Constitutional Affairs References Committee Inquiry into Gun Violence in Australia. She's in our Adelaide studios this morning. And National Party Senator for Victoria Bridget McKenzie is what's known as a participating member of that same committee with no formal vote. However, Bridget McKenzie is the lead author of the committee's dissenting report. And her favourite gun is apparently a Beretta Silver Pigeon over under shotgun. She joins us from our Parliament House studios. Penny Wright, Bridget McKenzie, welcome to breakfast. Good morning, morning. Fran. Senator Wright, can we just clear something up first structurally? Because we've ended up from your committee into gun violence in this country with two majority reports, (laughs) so-called. One written by you, signed off by three Labor senators as well. The other written by Senator McKenzie with David Lionhelm and two Liberal Party senators signing off. Very different sets of recommendations in these reports, but they're both claiming to be majority reports. They certainly are uh, different, Fran. And uh, this uh, this so-called report of the majority of senators in attending the inquiry, which uh, included senators who aren't full members of the committee but participate, uh, was uh, unprecedented in my experience in the Senate. And I think it just shows um, how desperate uh, these senators have been to have credibility, yet they weren't willing to sign up to what were reasonable and considered recommendations that the majority report of the committee came up with. I'd invite listeners to have a look at those recommendations to just try to see and understand why the coalition senators and Senator Lionhelm wouldn't have signed up to those. Okay, we'll ask Senator um, McKenzie that in a moment. But Senator McKenzie, uh, you issuing this majority report, you must have known it would cause a confusion and consternation at the very least. Was it was it a deliberate counterattack? You say I understand. You say it's been a long time in the planning. <laughs> Look, Fran, I think what was evident throughout the inquiry process was that there were some senators participating and full members of the inquiry that were more engaged in the topic than others. And whilst Senator Wright uh, can list a a number of names off, when you actually look at those senators and the level of engagement they had with the topic, uh, with the submissions, with the submitters itself, um, interrogating the evidence throughout those hearings, I think you'd actually, uh, Hansard will reflect that the majority of senators that did participate found that they ended up on the same page when it came to the analysis of the evidence presented. Okay, but the evidence, well, there's a 4-4 split as far as I can tell from the eight people who were uh, listening, even if they weren't all full members of that committee. You're quite upfront with who you represent. You, you do represent the gun owners of Australia in this debate, don't you? Um, I represent regional Australia. I'm a National Party Senator. I make no apologies about that. Um, If we're about declaring interests, I'm also a sporting shooter and a gun owner. Mm -hmm. And I don't 
shy away from that. It's a legitimate practice. I'm also a netballer. I hopefully that doesn't cause Senator Wright similar issues when I talk about women's sport as opposed to men's sport. Um, and I think we need to move away from the polarising conversation that the Greens want to have around this topic continually, uh, pandering to their base in inner urban areas in capital cities. Okay, and we'll move off this the politics of this in a second, but P- uh, Penny Wright, for you, because you have accused the, the coalition members of this committee and more broadly the coalition of kowtowing to the gun lobby. Yes. Why do you say that? Look, this was a highly politicised inquiry right from the start. There was opposition to um, establishing the inquiry, which came about because there'd been an increase in um, fly-by, uh, drive-by shootings in uh, Sydney, for instance. There'd been a siege in Adelaide. There'd been concerns about the possibility of uh, manufacturing using 3D technology of, of guns. And so if you actually look at the uh, terms of reference, it was about looking at where uh, illicit firearms are coming from, knowing how many there are and how we can tackle those. However, right from the start, there was great opposition from many members um, of the uh, of the committee. And uh, in fact, there were questions about whether this was a use of taxpayers, a right use of taxpayers' money. What did become apparent to me then is that there is, has been a concerted campaign to generate submissions from gun owners, from advocates and representatives of the industry. But that's, and also, but that's fair enough. I mean, that's par for the course of Senate, any Senate inquiry. That's right. But then for, for Senator McKenzie to be decrying um, uh, some kind of polarisation is really unfortunate when we actually are looking at what is in the national interest in terms of trying to ascertain how many illegal weapons there are in Australia, firearms, and how they're getting into those criminal hands. And if we look at the terms of reference, that's what it was about. So the reason it became polarised was because there was such a campaign to try and stop the debate about this issue because of I think, particularly vested interests in in the powerful gun lobby. Let's go to the nuts and bolts of your recommendations, both of you in your reports, because, Penny Wright, you say it's about sort of gathering real data, and yet your first recommendation is more more funding for law enforcement agencies to tackle gun crime, then implementing a rolling nationwide gun amnesty, then updating the National Firearms Agreement between state governments to address inconsistencies, and uh, introducing nationally consistent standards for the security of membership data held by gun clubs. That's That's your top four recommendations. So that's all about trying to put more effort and resources and funding into um, seizing guns and getting guns off the streets. That's that's your number one priority, yes? Yes, it's about it's about tackling gun crime and it's about we were wanting to find out whether law enforcement agencies had sufficient resources to be able to deal with that. One of the most staggering aspects of the inquiry was the lack of quality data and the inconsistencies in the data about who owns guns in Australia and how many guns there are in Australia. So right through the report, you'll see that uh, there are only best estimates of how many guns there are in Australia, over 3 million, but how many illicit firearms there are. Right. There are estimates about 260,000. But So a thrust of our recommendations was to have much better research and data. And unfortunately, the, the um, other senators in the dissenting report did not agree to anything like that. And I, I'm, I'm actually seriously confused about why we couldn't get agreement on the fact that well, we need better data. Let's ask Senator McKenzie that. Bridget McKenzie, your, your um, majority report wants less red tape. You want no national gun registry, so leave data and regulation with the states, no funding for the Australian Institute of Criminology research programs. On the face of it, it does look as though, as Senator Ryder said, you're not interested in gathering the data. 
to know no, what's really going on. Yeah, it couldn't be, couldn't be further from the truth, Fran. I think um, we're absolutely driven by evidence and, and data. And How are you going to gather clear, that? What became clear was that Senator Wright, in setting up the inquiry, had taken the data from the Australian Institute of Criminology and used that to frame the debate around the majority of illicit and illegal guns on our streets causing untold damage to our community are, as a result, direct quote, stolen from registered owners. She used that data. We absolutely interrogated that data and that particular organisation through the process of the inquiry. And it was indeed found that we don't know what we don't know, that it is much more likely that our borders, um, the increased mail packages, uh, the fact that criminals are now using the internet in similar way that drug pushers are using Silk Road to get illegal firearms to organised crime. And so what's there in your recommendations to deal with that? I can't see it. You want to study into the social and economic benefits into hunting? We back the the Commonwealth government's uh, push for a a minimum five-year trafficking offences. We absolutely encourage the government to increase best best uh, practice in terms of border security around these issues, which we had evidence that the government is already doing. Why don't you want a national gun registry? We have a national firearms agreement that has stood us in good stead since 1996. It it lays out a framework for the states who work collaboratively on harmonisation aspects. There's no reason to change that. Uh, You're listening to RM Breakfast. It's 16 minutes to eight. Our guests in uh, various studios are Senator Penny Wright from the Greens and Senator Bridget McKenzie from the National Party. Uh, We're talking about this inquiry into gun ownership in this country and gun crime in this country. Um, Senator Wright, after the Lint Cafe siege in December, last year in Sydney in which two people were killed by the gunman man Monis. Senator David Lionhelm, who was a, signature, a signatory to the other report, said more Australians should be able to carry guns and if they were, that siege wouldn't have happened and wouldn't have ended as it did. Let's just remind ourselves of what he said at that time. Australians have a legal right to self-defence. What they don't have is the practical ability to exercise that right. That needs to change. Those trapped within the Lint Cafe were left helpless as carrying items for self-defence are not allowed under state law. What's worse, the offender possibly knew it. This is not an argument for everyone to have a gun, as some people simplistically suggest, but if it is acknowledged that a police officer or someone similar may have been able to save lives, how can it be argued that any good guy who is trained to use guns could not have done the same? That's David Lionhelm, who's a signature to this dissenting majority report. Penny Wright, just briefly a comment from you on that, and then I want to get Bridget McKenzie's response to this. Yes, look, um, it's interesting that um, Mr John Howard came out after that and said that Senator Lionhelm's views reflected a simplistic and flawed analysis. And one of the things that, again, I found astonishing is that the recommendations of the majority report were totally consistent with the review of the New South Wales government and the federal government after the Martin Place siege, which indicated that all jurisdictions need to update their firearms data and get that to the National Firearms Interface um, immediately. What we had, though, is, again, we had a lot of pressure on the committee to include evidence from discredited gun advocates like John Lott, which was Senator Lionhelm's push. And we had the the coalition senators lining up with Senator Lionhelm to suggest that the gun buyback that John Howard instituted has not actually made Australia safer. That doesn't accord with a lot 
lot of the other studies and evidence, and I think right. people well, in Australia, why would they be doing that? Why would they be lining up with Senator Lionhelm against um, what uh, John Howard and others have been saying about that gun okay. buyback? Just a final response for you on those questions, <laughs> Senator McKenzie. Why d- do you think that the John Howard bu- gun buyback didn't make Australia safer? And do you agree with David Lionhelm, who signed off on the report that you wrote, um, that we should be able to change the laws to allow um, basically gun ownership more broadly, practical self-defence, so that any good guy carrying a gun could have um, come sprung into action in the case of something like the, the Lint Cafe siege? Well, the Lint Cafe siege uh, wasn't subject of this inquiry, and indeed that was uh, part of our issue with the uh, No, but I'm asking draft. you about the broader point, what you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Senator Lionhelm's on the public record of being uh, extremely libertarian and he's absolutely uh, welcome to those views. I don't subscribe to that particular level of uh, libertarianism Mm -hmm. in our community when it comes to guns. I think we've got a a great system under the NFA. I think there are some issues within individual states to make it easier and more efficient for gun owners and industry to um, be legal under the NFA. Uh, it shouldn't take the length of time it does to actually get your permit to purchase, etc. But you're but not interested in broader to, gun ownership? Well, we don't want to actually uh, make it more difficult for people to do something uh, in our community, which is participated by over 760,000 licensed gun owners in okay. this country. Just very briefly and finally from you, because I just want to nail this down, in terms mm. of the, the John Howard reforms and the gun buyback, I mean, are we seeing signs here of the end of bipartisanship on gun ownership, gun policy? Absolutely not. It is unequivocal uh, that we do not want to see any watering down of the NFA. I couldn't be stronger in that. It wasn't part of the uh, terms of reference. Uh, It wasn't actually prosecuted throughout the inquiry. What we took evidence on was how to keep our streets safer and how the police force and law enforcement agencies thought that that could be achieved and it was by strengthening our border processes. Well, I'm sure there'll be more discussion on this. Penny Wright, Bridget McKenzie, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Fran. Green Senator Penny Wright, who is chair of that Senate Legal and Constitutional Affairs References Committee into Gun Violence in Australia, and National Party Senator in Victoria, Bridget McKenzie, who was, as we've now heard, a participating member of that committee. Well, guys, you just heard from Bridget McKenzie. So we're going to get into the interview now. I hope you really enjoy it. Um, Great show. I'm glad I have this opportunity to have access to senators like David Lionhelm, Bridget McKenzie, uh, to our local state representatives, Shooters and Fishers Party, etc. And um, we've built this show over four years now and gets over 30,000 downloads per month. Just want to thank all you people that listen to the show, that have donated, that have bought stickers, uh, that have just you know, c- contributed to the show on the Facebook page. Because without you guys, I mean, it's nothing really because no one would be listening to it. Uh, so my name is Jason Selms. And without further ado, let's get into my interview with Nationals Senator Bridget McKenzie. This is Rod Drew, CEO of Field and Game Australia. This is Rob Fickling from Beyond the Divide and Maroka 30. Hi, this is Col Allison, hunter, journalist for 42 years and a shooter. Hi, this is Russell Mark, Olympic gold medalist. This is Charlie Jacoby from Field Sports Britain. Hey everybody, it's Tom Knapp and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Bridget McKenzie, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have a chat to you today. Thank you very much for your time. 
great to be here, Jason. No worries. Tell us, I want to find out about Bridget McKenzie. Uh, tell us about yourself, you know, where you grew up, and, you know, a bit of history about the uh, Nationals uh, senator. Uh, well, I grew up in country Victoria, uh, travelled around a bit, particularly in the northeast, Ilden, sort of Benalla area. Uh, went to my public high school and then uh, went away to school in my secondary years. But my dad was a small businessman and my mum a teacher and just grew up with horses and um, just usual country influences of sport, a lot of sport, and sort of a sense, I guess, from my parents that you had to put in or put up or shut up. Uh, so if things weren't <laughs> as you thought they should be, that you had a responsibility as a good uh, citizen to actually get involved, and they did that and were good examples of that throughout my whole life. So, yeah, loved it. Um, wasn't allowed to have a gun at home, uh, but my friends uh, all lived on properties, and so I would often go spotlighting with them or um, pig shooting up at Bulligal sort of in our early teenage years. So sort of... Um, Always thought that one day I would end up getting into shooting, which I have, which is great. Yep. Your pe- so when you, you said you were living sort of rural, were you, your parents shooters? They didn't own firearms? Wasn't a history within the family of sort of a culture of firearms ownership or anything like that? Well, there actually was, which is why I've always been quite fascinated why my dad said we couldn't have guns. But he grew up shooting. Um, my grandfather was a farmer. Um, Dad, obviously, as I said, um, shot with his brothers and cousins all, all through their childhood. But... Uh, just wouldn't let us have them. Um, <laughs> so a little, we, we worked around it. We worked around it. Um, what was your, your career or profession, I mean, prior to, to getting into politics? Yeah, well, I was a mathematics and phys ed teacher in uh, rural secondary schools in Victoria, and I ended up lecturing in phys ed at Monash University. I did a bit of research into adolescent girls and physical activity, so I was interested in uh, what made young people interested in being physically active, what were the positive aspects and negative aspects of that. So, yeah, yeah I was a teacher. Yeah, cool. Um, I guess we're talking about that. How did you get into politics with the National Party? <laughs> what, how did it come from teaching to, well, I'm going to run for parliament? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it always seems like a bit of a big leap, doesn't it? But um, I guess, like I said, my parents were always pretty involved in their local community and uh, about standing up and being counted. So we'd always talked politics around the kitchen table and uh, that was obviously... I grew up in the Hawke-Keating era, uh, so my dad, as a small businessman, had a lot to say about that. And um, <laughs> he was pretty strong in his views. And my mum, similarly, you know, she wasn't probably as political, but in her own way, she'd write letters to the Herald Sun about why there weren't enough women in the sports pages and blah, blah, blah. So um, I think from an early age, I was politically aware. And when I thought about the great inequities in the world or in my society, for me, it was that urban-rural divide that, that my cousins in the city had access to things that we didn't in the country and that there was a real disparity there. Uh, and that's, I guess, why I chose the National Party or back then the Country Party uh, as the political sort of vehicle for my views. I just never thought I'd be a politician, though. I thought I'd be a member and a supporter and hand out how to vote cards and have that sort of conversation around policy issues. And it wasn't until much, much later, probably in my early to mid-30s, uh, that an opportunity came up and and I sort of thought, oh, well, you've got to be in it to win it. So um, I didn't want to die trying or wondering, so I put my hat in the ring for the 
the Senate position and uh, ran my guts out and ended up winning and it's just been an absolute privilege ever since. Yep. Speaking about that, I wanted to leap to a question about how do we get, I mean, obviously firearms ownership is, I would say, is generally dominated by uh, men, but there's a lot of women now that are really coming up and really, really enjoying the sport, even if it's not shooting. How do we get women into, one, I guess shooting is the main part of this show, but how do we get them into sports in general? How do we get them into the shooting activities uh, so they enjoy it, I guess, as much as men? and have the same opportunity that we do as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Jason. And I think shooting and hunting uh, is a fantastic sport. And the more that women actually have a crack at it and actually get a gun in their hands, and whether it's at their local clay target range or rifle range or even even out in the bush, uh, they are absolutely... Uh, enamoured with this sport and when I talk to industry when they have the come try days it's the women that come out that are just absolutely taken with it so I think it's about providing opportunities for people to experience the sport and for women all the research that you look at about getting young women and, and women into sport it has to be non-judgmental it has to be encouraging uh, and non-competitive and that seems to be the prerequisites for getting uh, young women involved in, in shoot sport. And so when you look at shooting, it provides that. You're only competing against yourself, really, a lot of yeah. the time. And it's only if you really want to take it that next level that you can compete against others. So I think it's got all uh, the right uh, criteria to, for women to be just absolutely all over this sport. It's just about providing the opportunities and getting out there. And, and I I, you can sort of see that, as I said, with come try days or indeed even the um, school shoots. There's a lot of young women uh, there that are participating and, and it's just about getting out there. Some of the young ambassadors, some of the young Olympians, the young female Olympians, having them being really proactive and out in the media, I think also does... Uh, great efforts for uh, encouraging more women to get involved. Yep. I did see there's a fellow that does post on my Facebook page. His name's Justin McKenzie now. I <laughs> thought he might have been a relation but I asked him but he says no, he's not. Um, he put a video up on YouTube of you actually out on one of the ranges <laughs> and you were, you were shooting the lever action and the pistols and looked like you were having a grand old time out there. I was having a wonderful time. <laughs> um, I got invited out to um, the lever action titles and I hadn't actually come across this cohort of shooters before, but they're all in costume and they've all got yeah. um, different alias and uh, they run through these different sort of obstacle courses, for want of a better word, of, of their particular discipline. And, gee, it was fun. I, yeah. I'd never, um, you know, <laughs> shot a pistol like that or um, picked up a lever action. So I learnt some stuff that day and it was just wonderful. I think people don't understand the diversity um, of disciplines that are available within the shooting sports. Yep. And I think um, there's something for everyone which just makes it such a positive uh, industry to be involved in. Yeah, I, I did notice, you know, you've, uh, I've probably been following you now, it's probably say for the last six months. Now, I'm not sure what the first thing, it actually might have been the inquiry, but we'll get onto that stuff about the inquiry a little bit later. But you've been very passionate, especially recently, about uh, all different types of firearms ownership, about the, the Glenn McGrath debacle, which we will get into as well. How come you've been so vocal about these issues, uh, more so probably in the last six months or so? Oh, well, I've always been an advocate for freedom. And I think uh, as a National Party senator, um, the National Firearms Agreement 1996 was um, a period in my party's history that, you know, some of us 
uh, think uh, we could have handled differently. And, and for me, when I look at natural land resource management, when I look at how farmers need to care for their livestock, when I look at the cost, environmental and economic, of feral animals on our, on our natural environment, then you have to actually be supportive of hunting and shooting. Um, and that's aside from the, the positive sport sort of yep. um, focus of it. So for me, if I'm interested in, in representing regional areas, uh, then I have to be serious uh, about representing those people that uh, love to shoot and hunt. And I'm lucky that I also uh, love to shoot and hunt. But you've got to stand up. I'm not put into the Senate to be quiet. I'm not put in the Senate to just uh, vote where the party tells me to vote. I'm put in there to speak up for people who don't have a voice in the political system, and, and that's what I'm trying to do. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about some of your successes so far as a senator. If so, what have your achievements been since you were assumed into office? Yeah, well, I think there's been a couple. I'm uh, chair of the Employment and Education Committee, and we've um, done some great inquiries around higher education and how to get more young people um, off to university, and that's something that I'm really trying to focus on over coming months. But I think you mentioned it earlier, the illicit firearms inquiry that's just been completed last week was a particular um, uh, encouraging, I think, um, sort of effort from a whole range of senators and and indeed the the wider shooting and hunting community uh, where we were absolutely able to neutralise the Greens' uh, attack and demonisation of legitimate firearm owners once again and in a way that I don't think has been done before. I think sometimes we let um, them run uh, put the bit between their mouth and let the Greens run and have their public conversation that in the end um, demonises what we do and what we believe in. So it's very important, I think, particularly in the political context, to stand up yep. and to try and change that public debate and to once again normalise owning a gun, using it safely, uh, whether for work or pleasure. And if we all start to have that same conversation, I think we'll, we'll hopefully see the tide of public opinion change once again to where it is quite normal for Australians to be involved in this sport. I've just come back from New Zealand and um, <laughs> just the way, you know, that public conversation's had over there is just incredibly different. No way, we will be getting into that a little bit later. I've got some good things to have a chat to you about I think you'll enjoy. But um, as a member of the National Party, I want to talk about our rural uh, farmers um, I guess, is it hard to work with, I mean, obviously the LNP trying to secure funds for our farmers? Uh, what are the difficulties surrounding getting support for our farmers? I mean, we're seeing them commit suicide at a, mm. at a massive rate. We're seeing uh, just up, I think it was here in New South Wales about 12 months ago in regards to native vegetation. A man was shot by a farmer uh, from the DPI. Um, how do we stop these tensions? How, do, how can farmers and the government work with each other to make sure we get a good outcome and these types of things just don't happen? Yeah, well, I think it's important that um, we recognise just the massive changes that have occurred you know, over the last century that have seen back in the day, if you like, where farmers and, and those people that lived out in the regional areas were the majority of Australians. And now we see it's the complete reverse. We've got less than 27% of the Australian population lives outside our capital city. And so that actually has implications for policy development, but more importantly to going to the heart of your question is around understanding each other. 
we don't understand how each other lives in terms of that urban-rural divide. Even just a generation ago, um, people would have had cousins or uncles and aunts that they may have visited that were on the land, and that just doesn't exist at the moment. So there's a real misunderstanding of what affects each other and how each other lives. And I think it's um, we need to be very, very consciously seeking ways to engage uh, with what we do as regional people with city city folk, particularly the decision makers in, in city areas. So whether that's inviting them out to experience the way we live or indeed going into capital cities and, and sitting down at the table and explaining very clearly what some of the challenges are. And you mentioned them, you know, that the drought, particularly in Queensland and New South Wales at the moment. I mean, when you're a farmer and you're wondering how you're going to put food on the table um, for your family and your business that's going under is also where you live, there's no escape. There's mm. no escape for you. And that's where um, ensuring that we have adequate uh, services, particularly around mental health provision, are just so important out in the regions. Yeah. Yeah, I know. What, what, what can we do? I mean, as people, what can we do to help our farmers? And also, what can the government do or what plans do they have to help you know, our regional people and our farmers that are going through such a very difficult time at the moment? Well, I think from our government's perspective, it's about actually making sure that farm businesses are profitable. And so everything we do has to be focused on making sure that you're getting a fair return at the farm gate. And if we can guarantee that, then a lot of the issues that we're talking about actually won't exist. So young people, uh, the next generation of young farmers will want to stay on the land because they now can see that there's a dollar to be made there. Mm. Um, you know, it's a lot easier if we have policies that are focused on um, maximising economic returns. And so things like the free trade agreements that we um, have already negotiated, but similarly looking at developing more of those with the Middle East, for instance, and India, that they're actually opportunities to increase money back to the farm gate, ensuring that the competition policy that we support uh, doesn't just favour the supermarkets, the big retailers, that yeah. it actually ensures <laughs> yep. that money that, yep. you know, um, our city cousins, they may not be um, connected to the farm, but they can make decisions about what they purchase every day that will actually assist farmers and the return to that farm gate. So it's about actually pursuing a whole range of policy initiatives that are absolutely committed on, as a first point of reference, maximising the farm gate return because when we make those farm businesses prof profitable, our country towns are profitable, um, our regional cities and our nation. Yeah, exactly. So what plans does Bridget have for the future? What do you want to see happen, not only with your party, but what things would you be pushing in the future? Well, what I want to see is that no matter where you live in this country, you're guaranteed to some basic um, service provision. So if you're a young person anywhere in this country, you are absolutely entitled to a world-class uh, tertiary education. And if we need to, as a government, assist you to get there uh, and make it not so much of a financial burden on your family, if, for instance, if you live in, uh, say, Shepparton, in my home state of Victoria, uh, to head down to Melbourne or Sydney to do to do the degree that you want to do, it's going to cost your family upwards of 20 grand per annum per child. So we need to get serious that just because you're born in the country doesn't mean you're going to be locked out of higher education. I think we've also got to get serious about um, more and more free trade agreements as um, that actually opens up markets to our farmers. 
And I'd like to see a point where, as a nation, we have a consistent approach to natural resource management that recognises that this commonwealth, if you like, of um, national parks and state park system, yes, has environmental benefit, but also has social and economic benefit. And actually making sure we maximise that rather than the lock up and leave approach that we've been adopting uh, for the last 20 years. Yep. How important is uh, the removal of feral animals from our ecosystem to prevent extinction, say, from our native species? I mean, I'll go over a few just figures here. We've got in Victoria alone, this was big last year. I mean, it's over $439 million injected into the economy mm. with over 1,500 jobs. I mean, people buying ammunition, fuel, camping equipment, cars, you name it. I mean, how important that? Not only is it to uh, Victoria, but I guess other states and nationally around the country. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, feral animals, If you, the worst neighbour you could have right now as a, as a <laughs> farmer is a state government. <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether it's wild dogs ripping, ripping apart your sheep flock, um, whether it's foxes, uh, whether it's indeed brumbies up in the National Park, uh, in, my, in the Alpine National Park, or indeed um, Samba deer. I mean, I mean, the deer hunters love, love, love that. But it actually is, isn't actually positive impact on our, um, on our environment. And the fact that I mean, what really gets up my goat is the environmental, <laughs> the environmental uh, uh, contingent, you know, critiquing putting less than 300 uh, cattle up into the high country while we're letting, you know, hundreds of thousands of deer, brumby, etc. run riot through there in an unmanaged way is just ridiculous. It just doesn't make sense. I think there's some really great examples overseas of where... They've used sustainable use practices. They've managed the populations appropriately. And it's been a win-win-win for hunters, uh, for the environment, and indeed for landholders adjoining the park. Yeah, I also, this morning I was reading a few articles, especially uh, surrounding uh, Senator Penny Wright from the Greens, and a few of the comments were there saying, you know, you know, farmers don't need guns, you don't need to own a firearm, why would you need a firearm in this day and age? I mean, is it just ridiculous or...? Yeah, well, I think, I think what, you, what you're saying there is absolutely what we were talking about earlier, that we are, people in, in capital cities are so far removed from the reality of how we live our life out in the regions that, that to, to actually say that farmers don't need a firearm negates the very, very need that farmers use their firearm for animal husbandry practices all the, all the time to ensure that those animals that maybe are injured or, or indeed uh, suffering, are actually put out of their misery. I mean, so there's a real animal um, husbandry aspect to the use of the firearm. It just shows a complete disconnect. Uh, Senator Wright, you know, is only doing what the Greens policy mantra dictates, which yep. is to actually decrease the number of firearms in our community, which absolutely uh, neglects to realise that it's not the gun that's the problem, it's who's holding it that's mm, the real problem. Yep. Um, I've always said that, Bridget. I've always said that. But I think if the Greens honestly got their way, I don't think we'd own firearms at all, period. I mean, they would start on semi-automatic handguns. Then mm. what, what would be next? You know, like then my long arms and then pretty much, you know, we're like Japan and we don't really have anything. Absolutely. And I think it just, um, 
really shows a disconnect. I mean, if the worst thing you've got to contend with in your capital cities where the Greens vote is, uh, is, you know, a couple of possums in your roof every now and again, you really don't understand <laughs> what a real feral animal is or, or can do, not just, not just in terms of looking after the humanity, you know, the, the, the welfare of your animals, but also the economic impact on your business of the wild dog pack going through your sheep flock. I mean, it just, it just beggars belief, but again, shows that there's a real disconnect. And, and I think some of us maybe need to encourage the Greens uh, and people that hold those kind of views out of the cities into the regions so that they can really understand how we live, um, what makes us tick, and then hopefully there'll be better understanding and, and different policy outcomes. Yeah, I know you said you had a firearms licence, but when you get a chance to go out, what is it that Bridget McKenzie does? Does she you know, shoot pistols, clay targets? What does she enjoy? Uh, clay targets, and yeah. I've just got my um, duck hunting Oh, license. nice. Yep. So, yeah, this will be the first season, hopefully, that I will uh, get a chance to go duck hunting um, and we're looking at June to get out on a weekend there. So, yeah, I. Um, but mostly it's um, clay target, only that that's sort of quick and easy. And exactly, I yep. guess with my kind of job, it's, um, you're able to sort of head out and, and let off a box and, and then get back in the car and get back yep. to work. I mean, there's great organisations like Field and Game there in Victoria. Mm. And I did read, actually, I've got it here. Uh, someone posted, this was about the RSPCA. Now, one, one of, I wanted to read this to you. It's very interesting. This was from Simeon. It's, uh, this is on an RSPCA Victoria because they've been very vocal about duck hunting, as is the mm. Coalition Against Duck Shooting. And it says, please give me an example of conservation work done by the RSPCA, sorry, RSPCA or CADS, which is the Coalition uh, for Duck Shooting, Against Duck Shooting, to protect wetlands and waterfowl in Australia. Please show us any funds RSPCA mm. put towards waterfowl conservation in Australia. Now, the RSPCA... Victoria did respond to that and says, our purpose is to prevent cruelty to animals by actively mm. promoting their care and protection. And this was the telltale part, Bridget, not to perform conservation work. I mean, I find this <laughs> utterly insulting uh, as a, a shooter and as the RSPCA that we find organisations like Field and Game out there putting up nesting boxes, spend, right. spending the money and doing what's required um, to promote you know, native water, but and, you know, to, to manage the species. I mean, as I said, it was $439 million in Victoria. I mean, it's a, it's a huge uh, economy for the people in Victoria. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the Heart Morass, one of uh, Field and Game's fabulous examples of a conservation project where, again, like I was uh, saying earlier, where we actually sustainably look managing the waterfowl population for conservation purposes, but also so that it can be harvested during uh, duck hunting season. And I think there's numerous examples around the world. What we're missing out on, I think, in, in Victoria and indeed right across Australia, is the potential uh, to grow an industry, an export industry of, of hunting. When I was over in Scotland uh, visiting one of my kids, I was able to uh, go woodcocking out on the outer Hebrides, um, yep. And it was a fantastic experience out there on the moors with the dog and uh, with a guide. Just fabulous. Now, people are prepared to pay a pretty penny to do these sort of things in a whole range of um, environments right across the world. We are seriously missing out on a potential industry that is 
going to bring much needed dollars into regional communities as a result of restricting access and this public conversation that demonises hunters and hunting. We've got to change. Yeah, well, I've also seen that too. There's a, an exhibition that's uh, very popular. That's actually one of my episodes before you're going to come, for your one's going to come out, Hunt Fest. It's an exhibition in, uh, in Naruma and that they've actually beaten the Greens four times at council to be able to continue to have the exhibition. I mean, it's brought in over $1 million to the uh, rural community of Naruma. Now, while they're bringing in $1 million per year based on this exhibition, the Greens are trying to stop that and push mm. people out of Naruma. How does this make any sense whatsoever? Well, it doesn't, and it just highlights the complete ideological push of the Greens that they would rather forego local jobs forego local economic development, not with anything that's actually attacking people or denigrating society, but simply a group in the community, such as hunters, that want to celebrate a legal practice, right? Uh, and that they're prepared to um, want to get rid of those jobs, get rid of that economic development. I mean, we see it time and time again with that particular political movement uh, where they're more interested in their ideological push rather than real outcomes for people. And they don't want a community or a society where everybody's view is respected. Uh, I think with the Greens, it does seem that some some ways of viewing the world are more equal than others. And that's just not the kind of community or society I think we need to be promoting. Yeah. I'm going to talk about a big one now, Bridge. I think it's very interesting. Now, uh, I heard your ABC interview with Penny Wright. There's one we'll talk about at the end. But the main one I wanted to talk about uh, mm -hmm. was women, I mean, self-defence. I think this is a very, I'm very passionate to my heart, actually, um, especially women. I mean, we've seen here in, I mean, just uh, recently, well, just the other day, actually, you know, God bless her soul. The, the, the teacher that was murdered and burnt out in the woods just uh, down in Leeton. Uh, obviously, you'd be very well aware of Jill Ma, who was murdered and raped going home. Um, we're not even having a, a reasonable debate. I mean, let's not even talk about carrying firearms like David Lionhelm's been saying. I'm talking about even non-lethal form of self-defense to start with. Women can't carry anything, and they're being raped and murdered, and it is happening regularly. I just want to find out your thoughts on that and how women you know, can be safe when going out, I mean, it's easy to say to a man, you don't rape a woman. 99.9% .9 of men understand that quite clearly. But there is a jaded, uh, psychopathic men out there that just don't really care and will continue to do these things. How can we defend our women? Well, I think, um, you know, violence against women uh, is absolutely abhorrent. And I think, you know, as you said, the majority of people, I think it's even higher than 99%, um, would actually agree. And so I think it's beholden on all of us, uh, me as a mother, you as a, a father uh, or an uncle, you know, to ensure that young men are absolutely enculturated in the fact that you don't... You don't uh, attack anyone and you don't attack women. Um, I think in terms of self-defence, uh, women need to also obviously uh, be careful about, about um, themselves and their own safety as anybody does. Yeah. But I think that there has been a disturbing trend um, going forward. But what we are seeing now, I think as a public, we're talking about it more. We're talking about domestic violence. We're talking about um, women uh, needing to be protected, if you like, and um, belling the cat on, on that behaviour in our community that we find abhorrent. So, you know, judges need to be tough on that. Police yep. need to be um, following it up and prosecuting people under law. Women need to be ensuring that a partner that beats them up 
doesn't get away with it. They report it to the police. It gets dealt with. So everybody, I think, in the community needs to work hard to make sure that um, violence against women isn't tolerated. Yeah, I just hear all the time, I get a lot of emails from people and they say, you know, farmers, example, can protect their livestock, yet we can't defend our gift of life, which I think is a bit of a human right that I should be able to go somewhere without being attacked. And people will often say, well, Jason, has it ever happened to you? And I say, no, it hasn't. But you've only got to read the news every day and it's pretty much happening every two or three days. We're just hearing these, you know, terrible things. I mean, that lady Mm. in Leeton was getting married on Saturday, you know. I I mean, heartbreaking. You know, chances, I I don't want to use that as as a thing to push any agenda it's just that you know uh, there's a chance obviously nothing would have happened anyway and the result still would have been the same and i understand that but we're not even having a re i mean in wa you can own pepper spray um you know it's just i just feel like you know women uh, can't even go out these days without you know being preyed on by someone and have no i mean they're not going to beat a man i mean we've seen what happened with jill ma i mean the guy was a you know a gym junkie pretty pretty buff dude i mean you know she was half drunk what chance did she have it just it really pains me to hear about these types of things it really does yeah no it's it's abhorrent i mean i think it's also uh useful to remember though that you know most of us go out and have a good time and don't um come foul of uh foul of that sort of Mm. attack um, but it, it pays for all of us to be vigilant, and I think if if you also if you see um, someone being attacked, to sort of step in and be prepared to be countered, I think is important too. Mm, good stuff. All right, we're just going to go to a quick break, and we'll be right back with National Senator Bridget McKenzie. For everything Bushnell, go to Red Fox Outdoor Supplies online store. For a full range of Bushnell rifle scopes, rangefinders, binoculars, night vision, spotting scopes, and Hoppies gun cleaning products. Red Fox are also major online retailers for the popular Aussie Maxbox brand and the rest of the innovative products distributed by Eagle Eye Hunting Gear, all at Red Fox Outdoor Supplies. So go to the website redfoxoutdoorsupplies.com.au or phone Greg on 0412 495 712. Do you hunt deer and want to learn the correct techniques for a quality wall mount and premium eating venison? SSAA Sydney Branch provides hunter education courses to help you become a better hunter and to utilise harvested game in the most effective way possible. Course content includes gunning, butchering and caping from experienced hands-on instructors using locally harvested deer. There is no gear required and also includes a barbecue lunch. Courses are held every first Sunday of each month with an 8am sign-in for a 9am start. Course running time is approximately 6 hours and the venue is Silverdale Rifle Range. Cost is $50 per person so call Andy Mallon at Silverdale Rifle Range on 0246531440 or visit www.sydney.net. All right, Bridget, we're going to talk about um, getting into the inquiry now, which is ooh, the crux of our conversation today, which I'm hopefully going to enjoy. You were part of the committee, sorry, committee for the inquiry on banning of semi-automatic handguns alongside David Leinhelm. Uh, how did you get involved in the Senate inquiry and why did you want to get involved? Uh, well, I chose to get involved uh, because I noticed Senator Wright's um, press releases at the time of setting up the inquiry where she she made the grand claim that most illegal guns were not trafficked into Australia but stolen from registered owners. And I guess as an 
as one of those registered owners, um, I thought it was important to stand up and again, not let the Greens take the public conversation where they wanted to, which was going to end up demonising hunters and shooters. So it was important to actually be involved uh, and actually participate in that inquiry. And I think uh, at the end of the day, the findings of the inquiry were as we thought it would be, that the data isn't what we thought it would be, that it actually doesn't prove her contentions and indeed uh, she was ill-conceived to actually put it forward. Do you think the, the inquiry uh, from the Greens was set up in that, in that fact to, to generally target law-abiding firearms owners? Absolutely. If you look at the Greens website and download their policy on guns, I mean, I encourage your listeners to go there because if you had any doubts about their political intentions, you won't after you read that policy. And, and so whilst they mask it in, yes, the 3D manufacturing and they mask it with illegal guns on our streets, the reality was it was all about banning semi-automatic pistols as yep. part of their policy. Um, and, you know, you can dress it up like you know however you like but the rest of us that are in that conversation need to make sure we stand up and and we did and we were inundated with uh submissions from uh, hunters from mm, shooters mm. from dealers from everyone right across the country saying hang on you don't get to do this to us uh, we're law-abiding citizens there's a lot of positive benefits to being a hunter and a shooter and and let me tell you what they are and uh, you know, I thought it ended up being quite a positive experience. Yeah, I don't think they got many. I mean, obviously, a lot of us on Facebook put the call out there to get uh, uh, submissions in, and I don't even think there was, I don't know, maybe you might be able to tell me how many anti-sort of submissions there were. I, I read quite a few of them, and they were all, every time I opened one, it was pro, pro. The, it was fantastic. It was fantastic, you know, and I think um, that just showed the Greens, just how out of touch they are with mainstream Australia. I mean, <laughs> 760,000 people can't be wrong, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, that's a lot more that live in, in an urban... Unless you live in inner city Detroit. Melbourne, uh, exactly. yeah, where Adam Bantz elected, then you might say something <laughs> exactly. completely different. But <laughs> um, Exactly. So, uh, you know, I, again, I just thought it was a really positive experience. And, and then we had the opportunity during the hearings to hear um, from a lot of those groups and individuals, but also from the law enforcement agencies, which uh, their evidence was quite interesting mm. too, I think. I know. In, in uh, the Victorian police stated at the Senate inquiry, I think it was, that uh, all the information you had was that six firearms, was, or obviously handguns, were stolen out of 48,000 in Victoria from registered <laughs> users. Now, the very interesting part, I've actually got this on my YouTube page, this video, and it's had quite a few views, but you questioned the Institute of Criminology uh, mm -hmm. Where you originally said, I think, obviously as a rough figure, it was 0.6% or 0.06, I'm not sure. Then the fellow actually came back and said, no, it was 0 either 0 0.1 or 0.1% of those <laughs> firearms that were stolen. And they didn't do any data re or research based on illegal firearms coming into the country. I mean, there seems to be a major uh, issue with the data they had or what the terms of what they were trying to push during that uh, inquiry. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, Jason. I mean, at the end of the day, we all need to back evidence-based policy, right? Yep. So if your data is skewed, if your data is incorrect, um, then you need to question your policy basis, uh, which is exactly what we were able to do, I think. We were able to highlight um, that that Australian Institute of Criminology's data was absolutely useless, if 
for want of a better word. <laughs> yep. Uh, and as such, if it's useless, then you actually can't use it to make assumptions and policy decisions around. Um, and, and that, I think, uh, was even accepted by Penny Wright in the end. So, so overwhelming was it <laughs> in, in evidence. I think the Victoria Police also raised some really other interesting aspects about the illegal importation of firearms. And they noted that internet-facilitated firearm traffic trafficking is an emerging trend and and like you were saying it's not from law-abiding firearm owners that these uh, firearms that are causing issue on our streets uh, are not coming from us they're coming from overseas whether they're the glocks that are mailed into Australia yep. um, whether people are using the internet similar to how drug drug pushers use Silk Road um, to actually come about and get their their illegal um, firearm it's not through uh, legal legal owners and I think we made that really really clear and I even heard the drum I don't know if you caught up with the drum that Friday night ABC and all that but even Jack the blogger on the drum was actually saying well the data's all wrong and yeah. most of the illegal firearms come in from overseas which is exactly the case and to actually have that reiterated so publicly I think was a real success of the inquiry. Yeah but you were definitely I wanted to congratulate you on that you were definitely on song when you were asking those questions I mean I actually felt bad for them because when you're asking those questions, <laughs> you were like, mm, okay, and I was like, oh, this is just embarrassing. But speaking about that, obviously six handguns, to me that's too much, but if I'm yeah. looking at it as a grand scale here, I mean, it doesn't – obviously we want people so their firearms aren't being stolen. That's a given. Mm. We all understand that. But six, when we have, as you said before, I mean, that was up near my area about an hour away from me, uh, 220 handguns. These are the only ones they found, mind you. And, yeah, the, exactly. and the Institute of Criminology did not do any data around the illicit importation of firearms, which is huge. I mean, 200, that's the ones we know about. What about the ones we don't mm. know about? Absolutely. And, you know, I think um, even the law enforcement office, uh, officers were very clear in, you know, well, we don't know what we don't know. I, I think you make a really good point, Jason, about the six. Uh, Absolutely right, six is too many. We wouldn't want any of those being used um, in illegal activities by organised crime syndicates, etc. Yep. But you've got to look at this as a government. You've got to look at this as a, by looking at risk. So I've got X number of resources. Where's the greatest risk? That's where I need to focus my resource on. Um, and, you know, putting more regulation on the 48,000 handguns in Victoria that aren't getting stolen rather than actually focusing on, like you said, um, customs, Australia Post, etc., uh, the internet, monitoring those areas and ensuring we're getting a greater capture of those illegal guns coming in. It's a much better use of resources and will ultimately end up on a safer street. Mm, I, know, I mean, I know they can't find all of them and possibly check mm. every single package, but just, every time I kept on looking at that video, I just thought they don't have the data there. It just seems no. to be purely targeted at law-abiding firearms. And I mean, I don't know how anyone could have seen anything completely different. Well, you know, I think it was quite obvious in the end uh, what the Greens' agenda was. And, um, you know, it was great to be able to be part of being able to expose that for what it was. Uh, and I think 
at the end of the day, as senators and members of parliament, we've got to be focused on evidence-based policy. And uh, I think we, we got to the bottom of it in this inquiry. Yep. Uh, law-abiding firearms owners, I know you've been talking about a lot about red tape. Uh, they're mm. burdened by regulations for their law-abiding activities, case in point being uh, that firearms owners are often waiting six months or more for approval by the Attorney General's Department. This is actually, I've been, uh, uh, this has happened to me too. Uh, what can be done federally, I guess? I mean, I know it's an individual state thing as well, but obviously with the AG to streamline this process and would you propose any changes? I mean, again, David Lionhelm quite succinctly said during the inquiry, was there an element of gun control within the Attorney General's Department? I don't think they knew how to answer that particular question. Well, I've... um I don't think there is an element of gun control within the AG's department. I think what there might be is uh, not as much understanding as we could have about the realities of running um, a business that involves the importation of firearms. And so the more we can actually get industry talking with government so that government understands, well, if you put that little regulation in, that actually results in this sort of outcome. And these are just guys trying to run a business and employ Australians and pay their taxes. Um, then, then I think the department understands better how they can actually assist that business to be as profitable and efficient as it can be. So I think there's opportunity for that to be improved. And I think that's why we made some of the recommendations we did in our re- majority report uh, that looked at investigating how we can decrease regulation on not only firearm users like me, but also uh, industry like the um, Firearm Dealers Association, etc., to actually free up them to to employ more people and make more more profit and, and be able to turn their businesses around. Because you're right, it's ridiculous having to send guns in and out and, um, you know, Etc. as they're having to do. And we also made a recommendation that the federal government actually look at having a formal formal uh, avenue for input by industry, by the firearms industry, because at the moment um, the main advice that comes to government is from the police commissioners. And it would be great if the industry itself could actually have a formal input into government so that government can better understand how the industry works. Yeah, exactly. I just want to read a couple of things from the information because I've just been on Penny Wright's Facebook page earlier today before we conducted this interview. 1.157 of the report, just wanted to read this if I could. Despite the acknowledged deficiencies in the data available, the chair of the inquiry has unfortunately made comments in the media about the size of the illegal gun market and its impact on crime in the community. Many of the claims made were not substantiated by the evidence to the inquiry, particularly regarding the source of illegal guns and legal gun owners in Australia. And that data was 1.158. Claims been uh, in the media by the chair, which the majority of the senators attending the inquiry believe are not substantiated by the evidence include most illegal guns are not trafficked into Australia but stolen from registered owners. Uh, many illicit firearms are actually stolen from legitimate sources or taken from the grey market, including the gun used in the Sydney siege. Uh, the hypothesis that illegal guns are mainly stolen from registered gun owners was not supported by the evidence uh, to the committee. Now, I've seen on Bridget, uh, sorry, Bridget, uh, uh, Penny Wright's <laughs> Facebook page, I should say, saying she's lauding the Howard government's gun laws um, and still actually saying now that this is, uh, this is not true, that it's actually stolen from law-abiding firearms, as which the, the report has been done. It's not the case. I know, I know, and that's, I guess, frustrating, I think, and that's why it's so important that 
programs such as yours, Jason, and other avenues that we've sought to do media on actually are well aware of the realities and the evidence. Uh, I think sometimes in this sort of um, media market where anybody can make any claim and it's not really ever fact-checked, if you like, makes it really, really dangerous for regular people out there to work out what's true and what's not true. Um, so it's really, really important, given the evidence we received, that all of us that have an interest in this area make it really clear what the real evidence was to sort of counter the remarks by Penny Wright, mm. um, that it is indeed legal, legitimate firearm owners that are causing illegal guns to be on our streets and that's mm. just simply not the case and wasn't the evidence at all. Yeah, I think it was very great. frustrating. Uh, very frustrating. I know it's 1.1882 uh, which st did say the evidence was received that banning uh, semi-automatic handguns would have uh, no, I presume no material effect on the number of illegally held mm -hmm. firearms in Australia or the level of gun violence. The relatively small number of handguns stolen each year of which only a portion are semi-automatics suggests a complete ban would make no difference to gun violence. Evidence was received that a ban on semi-automatic handguns would have a significant effect on our sporting shooters, including our Olympians and Commonwealth Games participants. You think that's very true? Oh, absolutely. Well, this, the, what you're reading from is actually um, the report that we wrote. Well, what happened was... Um, I'm just doing this for people that haven't sort of read it yet. I'm just giving them a, giving them a, 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 yeah, a, a, yeah. a rundown of the people that haven't read it yet that may listen to my show, that's all. Those comments that you're, you're reading from are exactly the facts. They are um, the facts as we saw it. We were um, at every hearing. We were prosecuting the um, submitters. We were prosecuting the departments, uh, the police commissioners, um, the police officers, and indeed field and game and, and sporting shooters, etc., just to get to the bottom of it. And what we wrote, some of those comments that you've read out are exactly what we found. Now, Penny writes... Uh, report at the start of that document um, doesn't actually state the facts but the, the reality was that the majority of senators attending the inquiry found a very very different evidence base than is perpetuated by the Greens. Mm. I wanted to talk about 3D printing. I mean, with mm. as much as people don't like to say it, with the new gun laws in the NFA, we have a massive lucrative uh, market of illicit firearms. I mean, you buy firearms, if someone was to buy one off the street, uh, pre-1996 style firearms, perhaps the ones Man Monus used and the Sydney Siege. I mean, they're worth a massive amount of money. Uh, how do we stop people, uh, uh, you know, manufacturing firearms? I remember a few years ago, there was a fellow in uh, South Australia manufacturing either semi-automatic or fully automatic firearms. Um, they're actually quite look very well made. How do we stop people doing that and the 3D printing technology? Because I can see the government potentially in the future cracking down on 3D printers because someone may manufacture a firearm. Yeah, I think um, the world of 3D printing is like nothing we've ever seen before. And when we actually went out as a committee and, and looked at the 3D printing industry and its potential, it's significant. Um, it is, it is challenging, I think, for us to think about the challenges and the opportunities that 3D printing um, brings. I mean, at the end of the day, if a, an international crime syndicate wanted to get a, pay a million dollars, get a really U-butte 3D printer, um, yeah, I think it's, it, we're not too far away from them being able to print 
uh, a firearm, a working firearm. So what do we do with that as a community? Um, and I think that's a real challenge for governments going forward on how we regulate that, if we regulate it. When we spoke to the industry itself, they didn't see how you could regulate it. Um, you know, because basically it's like the printer in your home. Um, you, how do we regulate what people print and don't print? Um, so I think there are some real challenges for government with that particular technology and not just around the printing of firearms, around the printing of um, knives, uh, around the printing of a whole range of um, dangerous weapons. And But also I like to also think about, well, there might be some potential for um, new industries, etc., as a result of this technology. So we've got to keep an open mind, but also um, keep a watching brief, I think, on it, uh, because it's just moving so fast, so a government hasn't been able to keep up. What do you think about, I know, especially here in New South Wales, I, mean, I know the Shooters and Fishers Party in New South Wales recommended to the O'Farrell government at the time to get mandatory sentencing for people uh, in the commission of a crime using a firearm. Yet, you know, Barry O'Farrell and the Liberals didn't seem to be happy to put that in place. Would, why don't we get tough on people that are committing the crimes with these firearms? I think uh, the main issue with any type of mandatory sentencing is that you're actually taking the discretion away from a judge. Yep. And when we look at what, what, why our society works the way it does, it's because the politicians don't get to tell the judges what to do and the judges can't tell the politicians what to do. <laughs> yep, yep. And that's sort of a key underpinning of why our community works, the whole separation of powers. So... Would I, do I like um, judges that are tough on crime? Yes, I do. Do I think I should tell them exactly what they should do in every case? No, I don't. Let's not talk about mandatory sentencing, just tougher penalties in general. Would you support that? Yeah, I think it's important to be tough on crime. Absolutely. Okay, good. Absolutely. Let's talk about, before we go, we've got three or four questions to go, Bridget, before we finish okay. off. I know you're a, you're a busy, busy lady. I see your Facebook page. You're out everywhere playing netball. You're doing everything. So it's, <laughs> it's really good to see. <laughs> not enough netball. Not enough, <laughs> not enough netball. netball. Yeah. Glenn McGrath, the whole mm. debacle on Glenn McGrath was very interesting. I saw your, and I will link that to the blog post in, uh, for this uh, podcast when it does go live for all my listeners. Um, but I saw you, you made a sentence a speech about it very passionate really enjoyed it i mean is this i know hunters that are actually i mean i always was a fan of glenn mcgrath back in the shane warren and glenn mcgrath days huge fan of cricket and a lot of hunters were very very upset with glenn that he didn't own this he didn't he had nothing mm -hmm. to apologize for a lot of people thought that glenn actually threw hunters under the bus when, and i've kind of come around to agree that that semi may be true because if he actually admitted it and just stood to his you know quote unquote guns no pun intended perhaps people might have respected it because in one of the uh, which i already knew anyway in one of the double s double a magazine articles he actually and it is going around the internet that he was looking forward to and already had a passion for going and hunting in the African nation. So now he looks like, unfortunately, that he wasn't telling the truth. But tell us about the whole debacle and how ridiculous this whole thing is. Oh, well, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. Look, I first was made um, aware of just this public shaming, if you like, when that young Belgian uh, World Cup fan who ended up winning the L'Oreal modelling contract oh, yes, uh, yes. ended up, you know, losing her contract. Two days later or something. <laughs> as a result <laughs> of you know, um, hunting. And I, I made a speech at the time in mm. the Senate on that. Uh, I was just absolutely blown away back in 2014 that that yep. would be the case. Um, and then 
for Glenn um, to actually be denigrated in the way he was mm. on over Twitter, yes. I thought was absolutely abhorrent. Yes. Um, particularly when you think of these sort of um, activities that contribute, you know, over $200 million to the African economy, to some the poorest continent uh, on earth, and um, people are prepared to pay big money to actually hunt big game and uh, provide some underpinning economic development. In terms of uh, Glenn's decision on how he handled that, I, I guess that's up to him and I wouldn't like to make comment on that. But what I do want to make comment on is about how um, just because he was a hunter or is a hunter, uh, all of a sudden people are being urged not to support the Glenn McGrath Breast Cancer Foundation. I mean, how ridiculous. Um, absolutely disgusting. And I, I just think it just shows the level of, again, ideological commitment and hate that that particular group in our Australian society has for those of us that enjoy but we hunting. don't seem to have that too. Like in, I deal with people in the hunting and shooting industry and I find... I mean, it just goes, like, example is, you know, the Coalition Against Duck Shooting in Victoria when they go on the wetlands. I mean, and then they say hunters are, are attacking us or hurting us. I'm like, well, they went there to go hunting. They didn't go there to, you know, harass protesters <laughs> on the wetlands. You're coming to me to annoy me. I've come here to go hunting. I mean, it's completely, where do these people come from? I really don't know. And exactly. And I think um, you're there to participate in a legal activity you know, that's managed, that um, is enjoyable, that's social, uh, that can potentially provide food for your family. And they're, they're like these high moral ground um, activists saying, well, I'm sorry, I don't agree with your values. You don't get to do that in this community. Well, that's just not how Australia should operate. It's not how we were set up. We're set up to all just get along, that we've all come from different places across the world. We've all come with different values and we just respect each other and get on with it. And mm. that's been a great tradition for 200 years. It's a pity that we can't continue it. Mm, I just Over time I see that, I'm like, well, I'm here just having, mm. doing, going about my business, having a good time, and now I'm being harassed and filmed and whatever, you know, audio equipment and, you know, cameras are there, and it's just, it's just ridiculous. But um, I wanted to talk about, I wanted to go through a couple of things one at a time, a very interesting. Now, I'm 99% in agreement with you, Bridget. The ABC News, you did an audio, I think, uh, yourself and Penny Wright were on the ABC just recently, mm. three days ago. Um, I wanted to talk about, because you said you were interested in um, cutting, not cutting red tape, but making sure law-abiding firearm owners can go about their business. Now, due to the inquiry, obviously in 1996, the NFA, um, handguns were not banned as part of the semi-automatic uh, framework. Why can I own um, a semi-automatic 10-shot handgun, which I would say majority of the crime committed across the world, I'm sure you would agree, is committed with a handgun. Uh, yep. Yes, we have a polarising view of the American school shootings where, you know, the quote-unquote assault rifle is used. Why can't I own a five-shot pump-action shotgun, which, you know, my, my grandfather owned to go duck hunting, which is, you know, again, available in New Zealand, Canada, the United States, many, many places across the world. But, and I can own a pump-action centrefire 308, such as a Remington configuration, but they weren't but banned under the uh, NFA in 1996, or I can't own a semi-automatic five-shot shotgun. Do you think this is completely unreasonable for law-abiding people like yourself and me? Well, I think what we have to acknowledge is we do have the NFA, and it is what it is. 
and we have to operate within it. I think one of the, some of the things that were interesting throughout the inquiry was hearing evidence about how Canada goes about um, regulating firearms and indeed how New Zealand goes about it. And I think both those countries are very, very similar to us socio-politically and socio-culturally. Um, so I, I would like to look more closely at both New Zealand and Canada as potential um, changes if we were ever going to um, have a look at the NFA um, and, and, and re-examine what we've done there, that I'd like to look at both Canada and New Zealand as potential ways that we could do it differently. Um, however, having said that, I think in our current public conversation that we have around this issue, uh, that wouldn't be um, a public conversation that we would have a lot of joy in because we've got to, <laughs> we've got to, well, we've got to, we've got to bring it back, True. Jason, to normalising what we do and then try to take the next step. I and, was and just so one thing about the no watering down of the NFA comment. That's one of the comments. Where I was like, uh. I well, can't, you, got, you uh, can't scare the horses, mate. You got you got true, to step by step. I mean, if we if we go out there um, on a limb, it then makes it very very easy for others to pick us off as a group. So um, you know, this is a long term goal. Long term goal. Yeah, I, know, I just wanted to quote a couple of things. He was very interesting. You talked about because I lived in Canada for twelve months back in two thousand and three ah. in Toronto. Loved yep. it. Uh, Tory or Conservative government Stephen Harper said uh, the registry, which you, as you know they've gotten rid of for long arms, was wasteful and ineffective. He also mm -hmm. stated the registry has not solved a single crime nor saved one single Canadian life. Uh, the position of the Stephen Harper's Conservative government on long gun registration is clear. The registry is, again, is wasteful and ineffective and must be scrapped. Uh, the uh, province of Ottawa, just actually a couple of days ago, lost their final bid to secure the data. So, again, I wanted to talk about registration. I mean, Canada, abo sorry, Canada abolished it a few years ago, the long gun registry, and New Zealand abolished it back in the mid-1980s. Uh, they've got all the firearms that uh, America has got, very similar to America, actually. You can still own the AR-15s, uh, silencers, suppressors, whatever you'd like to call them in each specific country. Um, again, why can't we be like that? I mean, um, uh, it doesn't make sense. Well, I think you've actually hit the nail on the head. When, when our community and our society in a democracy has the same understanding and appreciation of firearms that the Canadian public does and that the New Zealand <laughs> yeah. public does, yeah. then yes, the yes. political leadership will change. And so that's where I think it's a really exciting time for those of us that love what we do to actually take that really positive conversation out there, start engaging more and more people, young people through schools, women, as you were talking about earlier, um, in in hunting, in shooting, uh, dispelling a lot of the myths about who we are and what we do. And so that down the track, our political culture will be different and we will be able to have a different conversation with our leadership. Um, mm. That's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. I just want to go on one more. I know it's probably going over it again, but uh, there was, was uh, Anne Tolly. She's the police minister. And this is great. We don't have sort of the police ministers that advocate for gun owners in general. Sometimes they do, like the Victorian police that did give good data at the inquiry. Uh, she said just recently on TV1NZ, there is absolutely no evidence to show that, in fact, registering individual firearms will give greater protection uh, to the community than the current 
current system we already have. And they have no intention of changing that system, which the industry and police actually supported. I mean, this is coming from the police minister. I mean, they're just over the pond, Bridget. They've got all the <laughs> firearms we had in pre-1996. And as far as I'm aware, John Howard wanted them to go down the road of Australia. They pretty much said, no, get stuffed. We, we know what's going on here. And again, they keep saying that uh, violent crime with a firearm or death with a firearm was dropping long before 1996. That is a fact. So, and we haven't, they're saying we haven't had a mass shooting since 1996. Well, as you would know, neither has New Zealand Bridget. So why are we wasting millions and millions of taxpayer funds, which could go to our schools, our elderly? Anything really would be better than this wasteful... I mean, what does John Howard know that Stephen Harper, the Prime Minister of Canada, or Anne Tolley, the New Zealand Police Minister, don't know? What does he know that they don't know? I'm not going to second-guess the former <laughs> Prime Minister, John Howard, but what I am going okay, to agree I, with I you, you, Jason, is the waste of uh, money, that, that too much regulation in this space, not to mention, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the waste of time for all of yep. us as we wait for our little bits of paper to mm. go to Permit this bank. Permit to acquire. Oh, yep. does my head in. does me so, too. So um, that's why one of the recommendations we made as the majority of senators uh, attending the inquiry was for state and territory governments to actually have a look at decreasing regulatory burden on firearm owners and on industry. So we're hoping the states and territories really take that up. Yep. So my question be, would be, if it was coming up and there was a healthy debate about it and they're looking to get rid of it, would you support its abolishment, yes or no? The regulate, regulatory burden? Say either, say either registration under the NFA, would you support, if there was a conversation about that, to go the way in New Zealand, would that be something you would support? Well, that's why it's raised in our report. We've actually flagged Canada and New Zealand as something to think about. I, I don't see the communities there yet. Um, but I think over time, as we have more and more conversation and uh, there's more evidence and factually based discussion on this, that who knows where we'll end up. True. Uh, and again, if anyone wants to read that for my listeners, please jump on there. I've got a link on my Facebook page. You can read the whole report. Um, Bridget, to finish off, we've got just two questions. We've got to hear a story, something <laughs> something professional, could be a hunting, even a shooting story, preferably in the shooting because that's what my show does. Or if it's not, if it's a professional story, so be it. That'd be great. Tell us you know, a story just that can go to my listeners because they always love hearing our stories from my listeners. So go, take it uh, away. Well, I, w- I will... I will let uh, your listeners know that we have launched two weeks ago um, the Parliamentary Friends of Shooters um, that I'm the um, co-chair of with Joel Fitzgibbons from the Labor Party and what we're hoping to do with that is actually extend the conversation with parliamentarians and get them all experiencing um, the different facets of shooting and hunting so that they're more aware of, of the benefits and what I've been really interested in is a lot of the female parliamentarians sort of coming up to me behind the scenes saying are we going to get to actually shoot Bridget and I said yeah well we're going to go out here we're going to do that we're going to do this and they're so excited I've always wanted to do that I've never had a chance to do that so I think um, that's going to be a bit of a watch this space over the next sort of five years but I did um want to brag a little um once a year in victoria we have what's called the poly shoot. i have heard about that yes david yeah. i originally spoke to did an interview with um david hawker do you know who david hawker uh, is yes yes, yes. david yes. fabulous i've had him on my show recently and he gave me some very good insight into because he was a speaker of the house but before that he was on the consultative committee uh in 1996 so we had a great chat but sorry continue oh that would have been fascinating i'll have to download that podcast um but 
And David attends this particular day, but it's a great day where Field and Game actually ask a whole range of politicians uh, to come out to a gun club and we go through, some people are shooters, some people have never tried before and we actually are all in teams and then have a bit of a shoot and at the end of the day um, eat some game and, and sort of really promote conservation and, and game shooting that way. And I'm very, very proud to announce that, um, yes, I was very lucky to be part of the winning team. I wasn't yeah. the best shooter of the day, but I didn't. I wasn't the worst either. Was it sporting clothes? <laughs> was it sporting clothes or what was it? Yes. 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 Oh, that's and one of I my favourites. And I think favorites. we did um, some skeet as well. Ah, oh, one of my yes. favourites. Certainly love my clay target shooting. Uh, if people wanted to get in contact with you, obviously they want to vote for you. Is there a website, an email, Facebook? There is. Give me We've got order. all the normal poly things. I've got to um, <laughs> look for Senator Bridget McKenzie. I've got the website, a Twitter account, and... Um, Email senator.mckenzie at aph.gov.au. I'd love to hear from your listeners and um, let's keep this positive conversation going about our sport. Yep. Thanks, Bridget. I, I know a lot of people, I just wanted to say on behalf of hunters and shooters, I have received oh, too many emails to list saying, oh, have you seen this, Bridget McKenzie? She's great. I even had one guy <laughs> say, you're, you're a good sort. So, you know, he, he thought you were nice looking. So, I mean, good on him too, as you know. <laughs> Um, but just wanted to say thanks for all the uh, you know helpful stuff you've been. So it's good to hear people, especially from one of the you know, major sort of parties as well, that we're, we're hearing this good, honest debate in Australia and keeping it scientific-based, not emotions mm. that the Greens tend to want to put out all the time. And, you know, they just keep wanting to attack. I mean, I just want to be left alone, Bridget, as you probably do too when you go hunting. I want to be left alone. I want to go and do my thing. It's legal and law-abiding. And I just don't want to be bugged by people. I want to have a bit of freedom. And Australia was built on freedom. It wasn't built on taking, constantly taking people's rights away. And that's where partly I do agree with David Lionhelm. I know he's pro-libertarian, as you said on the ABC interview. But, you know, we need to get back to what Australia was before, you know, the early 90s, where people, you know, we, we, were, we, were, we were, I think, a, a bit more freer than we are today. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think um, government's role should really to just... Be in the background and uh, people should be allowed to just get on and be their best selves and that's not with a lot of regulation because that tends to tell you what's right and what's wrong. Uh, most people know what's right and what's wrong and, and it's about getting along with each other and respecting different views and uh, that's what we were built on and that's what we want to get back to. Perfect. Bridget McKenzie represents the Nationals and she is the Senator for Victoria. Bridget, thank you very much and I hope we'll be able to chat again sometime soon. Same here, Jason. Ciao. You've just been educated and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.